You're listening to PeaceCast, our monthly conversation where we talk about politics, ethics, the arts and culture. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Dave Taylor, and joining me as always is our co-host, Joel Harrison. How are you going, Joel? I have the plague. Yeah. Um, brought by the harbinger of plagues, uh, namely my son, who yeah. exists in a world of plagues now known as daycare. But otherwise, fine. Thanks. Yeah. For the record, I don't want you to die, but if you do, the ratings for this will probably be almost Phenomenal. double figures. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> from five to, to ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most of the medical professionals <laughs> trying to work out what happened. Um, this week, uh, we're going to be beginning with our uh, conversation starter, where we're going to talk a bit about the DC cinematic universe and why it is a bit rubbish and how we should fix it. Then we're going to be talking about uh, religious liberty under the banner of uh, what about them politics, our regular segment. And then we're going to be finishing up uh, by talking about the cult of explanation uh, in our section, why church, why. But uh, before we get started, we should probably just acknowledge that we've, we had some bad news today, Joel. Um, That's right. Yeah. The, the the founder of my faith has has died. <laughs> um, obviously, I, I woke up this morning to the news that the uh, great Stan Lee um, uh, passed away last night at the age of ninety five. Um, Which well, he never looked ninety five, did he? He always looked the same age. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although when you see the video clips of him in the original Hulk with um, Lou Ferrigno and so on, oh, that's true. He does look. Young and suave. Yeah. I suppose I did, because I remember him from Mallrats the most. Right. Um, and I was very, very young when that came out. Looks pretty much the same. Um, and because he probably actually looks quite young now, but as a child he just looked like an old man. Does. Yes. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and also he used to come and do the moral at the end of the story for um, I think the Fantastic Four cartoon or maybe the Spider-Man original animated series. Right. He'd come and do like a... Excelsior, <laughs> yeah, um, and don't beat up minorities. Yeah, yeah. Or unlike Captain America, when you have a family, keep it small. I hate you, Captain America. <laughs> <laughs> so, what was your favorite? Is that an actual thing? Yeah, it was you... an actual thing. Oh, right. They did a whole episode about how rats were taking over a parallel world. Oh, and so Captain on. Planet. Oh, did I say Captain America? Yeah, yeah, Captain Planet. Sorry. That's right. And, they the and they're like at the end. Yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah, it was yeah, like when you have a family, keep it small. Me and my four brothers sat around saying, "We will destroy you, Planet." <laughs> um, what's your favorite uh, Stanley cameo? I think there there has to only be one for Ooh. anyone. Oh, um, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. Ah. He's, he's sitting on the moon talking to the Watchers, ah. and you get this sense that maybe he. Every iteration yeah. he's been in, he's actually some right. sort of cosmic entity yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that's like observing. Yeah, it's um, very meta. Yeah, at that point. Yeah, I really like that. What's yeah. yours? Um, that's a very good one. I I was look, watching them today, as I'm sure you were, and I really liked um, the Amazing Spider-Man cameo. Uh, this is the Spider-Man with. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Oh gosh, his name's gone out of my head. What, what's the actor's name? Andrew Garfield. Andrew Garfield, yeah. And he's fighting with Lizard in the uh, oh, li- right. in the library, and it's just silent music. And yeah. Stanley's just plotting away while he's you know being yeah. saved from a desk and so on. 
Yeah. I just found that quite whimsically sweet. Actually, yeah. I thought you would have said the um, the the, ha- the ham-fisted one in uh, the Venom movie that we saw together in an already ham-fisted film. What was the uh, he, at the end? He's he? like, "Are you two back together?" Oh. <laughs> and you know, is he talking about the symbiotes or is he uh, talking about the the uh, lady friend? Gosh, oh, oh I better re- better than Dickens. I don't remember anything from that film. And, and that's because that's a film, and Dave. that's a blessing. Yeah, <laughs> that's a film that would probably make it into the DC uh, cinematic universe, mm. right? In terms of being just not quite good enough. No. So on our conversation starter, yeah. we were not just going to talk about Stanley. We we're going to quickly just give a a thought as to um, um, why, how we would fix the DC cinematic universe now. DC Cinematic Universe has not quite hit its strides in the way the Marvel Cinematic mm. Universe has. And there are problems. There are problems like actors seem to be dropping off yeah. <laughs> and no longer being part of the projects. Yeah. And there's an unclear pathway for their movies, which for fanboys like us is sad because mm. we don't want this golden age of comic cinematic universes to end. Yeah. So, Dave, what is wrong with the DC Cinematic Universe? Um, I mean, to, to, to be fair, though, to start with, like it's not like the Marvel Cinematic Universe got off to um, a flying start. It had many false starts. If you want to begin the story with Iron Man as the first film, which is what most people think of, yeah, like that was a really good start. But there was actually The Incredible Hulk before that, which didn't... Oh, oh, was that before that or after? With anyway, there was there was a there was a few mishaps and things like that along, yeah. along the way. But they were part think, of a connected universe. Yeah, of those mishaps. Well, and I think there's a there's a few things that's gone wrong with the DC universe uh, films. I think it's called DC Worlds. Is that what the their brand is Who now? Who knows? Um, but uh, I think um, so. The I think the the thing that makes Marvel's the Marvel Cinematic Universe work is that they they have a central authority that sets um, the parameters for what's going to happen uh, in the film. So uh, Feige, I think, is the basically the showrunner of the, the universe, which right. gives it a level of coherency that I don't think the DC um, movies have. But my biggest problem is that basically they just picked the wrong guy as their... Um, as their instigator of the universe being Scott Snyder. Is it Scott Snyder? Zach Snyder. Scott Snyder is a really good comic book author. Right. Which is why, and he writes Batman comics. Right. And some of the best Batman comics ever. Uh, that's why I get confused. But so he's Zach just Snyder the wrong guy. has been in, in charge of Man of Steel, yes. Batman versus Superman, and then he was in charge of Justice League until he had to tragically pull out. Yes. And then Joss Whedon uh, finished it off, and but you can see ru- the tonal shifts yeah, in right. Justice League. Because but there's also rumors that. He was actually going to get pushed before. Unfortunately, right. he had a personal tragedy um, for for a number of reasons. But um, I think he's he was basically the wrong guy. Even though actually, Man of Steel, I actually really yeah, quite I, like yeah. that. And film. I think and I still think Batman vs Superman is um, not as bad as the critics made out, but still very problematic. I think it's every bit as bad, <laughs> <laughs> if, if not worse. Okay, but so what's wrong so, with so Zack Snyder? What, so what's wrong with Zack Snyder? So um, for those that don't know, he's famous for um, 300 um, and The Watchmen. So he's got kind of comic book movie credentials. Um, but he has a particular sensibility. He has a very um, distinct visual style, um, which is lent on very heavily. Um, 
did he? He did Sin City as well, I think. Yeah, dark, um, dark, um, blood splattering, super um, stylized, and, yeah. and really um, wanting to uh, almost uh, accentuate every moment of violence. Yeah, uh, a lot of freeze frames, a lot of like moments of time, which lends itself to Illus basically doing a comic book on on screen. But he's got a particular ideology, I think, that's behind behind him, which I think gets the core of what went wrong. Basically, I think the problem is. He started off introducing Superman as just a bit of a dick. Uh, so Superman is not the Superman that we really recognise. He um, is quite a egocentric, um, uh, self-involved person. Angst-ridden. Very angsty. Um, now that would have been fine. And, and inculcated by his parents to be more driven towards himself. Yeah, that's right. So And also... Don't worry about saving the world. Look after yourself. Kind of what thing. does his mother say? Um, you, you don't owe them anything. Yeah, you don't owe them anything. And that actually, funnily enough, um, I and I hope I'm not reading too much into this, what me do that, but um, that is very much in line with the philosophy of Zack, Schne- Zack Snyder's hero, um, literary hero, uh, Ayn Rand. Uh, he is a massive fan of Ayn Rand. His next film um, project is The Fountainhead um, really? and he apparently reads it every year or something like that. Um, yeah, and Ayn Rand is known for a uh, moral philosophy which is essentially um, uh, uh, altruistic sceptic. Um, that is, that it's, it, it's actually immoral to seek to have disinterested love um, and care for those around you, that you first have to uh, and primarily take care of yourself. Um, and that is your primary moral obligation is to seek your own happiness. And so... Superman is very much that figure um, in in Snyder's movies. Um, he has a deep love for his mother and his lover, um, but it's it's that egocentric, erotic, loving type uh, type of relationship rather than the disinterested, universalized love of the comic book Superman. Um, and I I think that's that's a fundamental misstep. Now it. It could have been that they could have set up the first movie to be, well, he starts off this way and develops, but he doesn't actually develop at all. You rarely see him, like, just going about the place just rescuing people. Yes, Um, which is kind of the difference you then see in Justice League. They're trying to tonally shift it, right? But it was interesting watching Justice League because my constant expectation was that when Superman returns in Mm. Justice League, he was going to do something bad, Mm. something dark and nasty was going to happen, right? Um, Now, I think it's interesting what you're saying because in ways what you're characterising as Superman is is a fair enough characterisation of someone like Lex Luthor. And I think in Batman vs Superman, Mm. I actually actually really like Jesse Eisenberg. Is that what I was saying? I I really like his Lex Luthor because it's this kind of humanist idea that you have to crawl, uh, you know, claw your way up to the top and like rise above to be this sort of uber human um, person. And he kind of, and he, and he has a speech at the art gallery. And Superman's an affront to that because he has it all naturally. Superman's an affront to this and so on. So I think that's good for Superman, it's good for Lex Luthor. Yeah. But it's not a Superman. Well, this is the thing that Zack Snyder has picked a film to make where the villain of the comic books represents his own ideology and philosophy, um, which which doesn't quite work. So who, so what would your Superman be? So my Superman, uh, I so if I was making a Superman movie, um, I would actually want to make it more kind of high concept science fiction, um, and actually have him have the interest of the film not being this introspective, conflicted character, but um, presented with just bizarre 
a bizarre world. And I would have liked to see it ever kind of, I have this love, uh, this this dream that like a Matthew, Stephen, Stephen Moffat from Doctor Who, um, I the showrunner for Doctor Who. Is you are going name? crazy now. Where are you? <laughs> Um, I would love to see him do do a Superman movie um, that's just completely bonkers because my favourite comic book Superman of all time is Grant Morrison's All-Star Superman, right. um, which is just bonkers yeah. uh, and just vibrant colours and... Um, and Okay, but and that's, a, that's so, a sort of standalone Superman. But, um, I mean, within the Justice League world, yeah. within their cinematic universe. So I think... So my... And the, I, I, I have a kind of theology theological reading of Superman mm. and that is I so people don't like Superman because he's not morally conflict conflicted and people think that you cannot find it interesting to have a character that is not morally um, conflicted and self introspective and things like that but I think that like misunderstanding Batman is the yeah one that that's we right like and him. everyone loves Batman because he is this he's a compromised figure Bandit. whereas he I think Superman um, is interesting because he He's he's not conflicted morally because my my reading of it is that because he's invulnerable, um, he he has nothing to fear, uh, and because he has nothing to fear, um, he's freed to embrace the good fully and embrace the whole world um, fully, uh, and it's actually out of uh, fear and vulnerability and scarcity that human beings tend towards doing the darker things that human beings do. Um, and it, it, he's actually a meditation on, well, what could human beings be like in an unfallen state sure. um, uh, that they wouldn't even think of doing evil? It would be so repulsive to them. Um, whereas Snyder's um, moral Are you lesson... suggesting a resurrected body could leap tall buildings in yeah, a man. single bound? <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> but, uh, and um, uh, I mean... Zack Snyder's, um, his moral philosophy seems to be that it is actually the obligation of the powerful to do evil. So um, at the end of Man of Steel, the moral lesson is Superman needs to snap someone's neck to save a vulnerable family. So And and then at the end of Batman vs Superman, Batman needs to break his ultimate taboo and shoot someone with a gun to save Superman's mother. Right. Um, And I think that is a very dark reading of morality and yeah. it's actually, I think, a microcosm of American politics. It's the base of the theory of American exceptionalism. To um, be moral is to be the one who can break the code yeah, itself. being willing to do what others are unwilling to do yeah. because of their scruples. Yeah. And that's the true heroism. And I yeah. think that's Snyder's moral outlook and I just think it, ma- it makes bad storytelling. And, and, and that also then there's not necessarily... At least in that instance of Batman shooting and so on, there's not a moral cost to that either. Mm. Yeah. It's not like it's not like in the next Justice League, he's in his Batcave going, "What did I do? Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. betrayed everything." Yeah. Anyway, we uh, I think we've run out of time. Although, but basically, I, you're I saying Superman is what perfect love that casts out all fear. Yeah, that's right. Um, that the the idea is. Um, uh, without that fear and love are always in conflict. And if you have nothing to fear, if you're completely invulnerable, then you're freed up to love in a certain way. And then there's interesting things that come in thematically with Kryptonite where he becomes incarnated, he becomes like us, and then he has to choose whether he's going to keep the moral code with the vulnerability. And I think right. that is a Christological image. Ooh. And I think Snyder's Christology, we've already gone on too long to talk about it, it's just ter- it's 
that he he loves his Christ images, but he doesn't he doesn't he can't comprehend right. Christology uh, or soteriology, the theory of salvation or mm. atonement. He just has to you know do like every '90s movie does and have your hero do a Christ pose yeah. and think that's really profound. Yeah. Like just shut up. <laughs> <laughs> like add some actual theological content to what you're right. doing rather than just oh this is a cool image. Yeah. Um, and I'm just sick of films doing that anyway. But we should move on. Um, Joel. Is my name. Uh, you are a, uh, you are someone that's interested in religious liberty, are you not? I've turned into that <laughs> droid that tortures other droids in religion. <laughs> uh, you are a protocol droid, are you not? Um, our next segment is why, uh, what about them politics? And we're, we get wanted to, to serve about, on jabbers. Like, yeah, that's, that's, that's like true. Some party times. Uh, so we're talking about religious liberty, something that um, you, Joel, have a keen interest in as a legal scholar and someone who writes around this area, who's recently published for ABC Religion and Ethics on this topic. Um, but you're also someone uh, who is part of a religious community in Sydney that has become um, front page news uh, around this uh, topic. Now, for those uh, that are listening to us from overseas, and I know there's a, a couple of you, um, recently the Australian government commissioned a review uh, of current protections afforded to um, religious groups and individuals um, coming out of the uh, legalisation of same-sex marriage in Australia. Um, a review was uh, commissioned into um, whether or not conflicts would arise between the rights of uh, people of the same sex to get married and... Um, what could probably be called conscientious objections. Um, well, and wider than areas. that. Um, wider than that, just simply also looking at the state of religious liberty in Australia. Yeah. And so a document came out of that called the Ruddick uh, Review. Well, the document... Uh, has not come out, <laughs> not come out of that. <laughs> it's, but it, uh, uh, it has been reported on uh, quite a bit because it has been leaked um, and discussed very intensely uh, by the media uh, recently in Australia. Uh, and that was coupled with um, a discussion... Uh, which also was reported on before it happened um, at the Sydney Anglican uh, Synod, which Joel attended part of. Were you there for the whole time? Wow. Well, I'd Joel. like to say, <laughs> you know, um, I was there for my constitutionally required amount of time. I don't actually know if there's sure. a... Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. But... Uh, yeah, uh, yes, I was there. Recently, uh, the, uh, the Synod uh, reaffirmed its commitment to what it understood to be the traditional um, Christian understanding of marriage but being an institution between a man and a woman and calling on the state to respect religious liberty as well as the, in particular, um, at least this how it was reported on, the right of uh, Anglican and Christian and all religious schools to discriminate against people um, who are from the LGBT community. Um, and this caused a huge um, storm uh, across social media, across the media proper, um, with a lot of um, uh, back and forth, a lot of people, uh, a letter was written by the heads of a whole bunch of Anglican schools, um, uh, which some leaders have since taken their name off um, and things like that. So it's a big issue in Australia at the moment. It's a big issue uh, worldwide, religious liberty. Um, I have a few things I'd like to ask you, Joel. Um, but first of all, um, I suppose I, the first question I'd like to ask you is, do you think that the 
the reporting um, that's taken place on uh, discussions around religious liberty, particularly around discrimination for LGBT people um, by religious institutions? Has it been accurate? Um, and if not, in what ways? Um, no. Um, this is... So I take it this is going to be um, Dave asks Joel a series of questions. <laughs> Joel says, yes, no, seven, ten, <laughs> um, more. Yes. Um, so on the media reporting, um, no. I mean, it's uh, I, I've said at the elsewhere that I think it's been a bit of a mess, really. It started um, with... Um, look, the reality is that the the government has not released the report itself, mm. and and that's not a good thing because yeah. obviously public discussion then takes place in the absence of this report. And yeah. what happened was, which was, sounds, by the way, like it's actually going to be um, drawing back. Well, the recommendations, uh, you know, to, no nobody gets everything they want, sort of style. Yeah. Um, so what happened was there was a partial leak and somebody reported on that. And look, if I'm being honest, I think the original leaking, the original reporting on that was nothing short of religious baiting, if I can coin right. a term. Yeah. It was it was a way of, um, I think it was a form of getting clicks to drum up sort of a sense of outrage against particular communities that are engaging in practices that were seen to be, um, well, engaging in practices that they claimed these communities were engaging in. Um, and so there was a discussion about the Ruddock uh, review was going to be recommending that um, uh, a right to expel gay children would be entrenched across Australia and this mm. sort of thing. And, you know, at, at least we haven't seen the report, but it doesn't seem like the recommendations are saying something like that. Um, the Commonwealth Sex Discrimination Act already provided for um, the capacity for schools of a religious organisation to deal in questions of hiring and, yes, sometimes around questions of students, but the reality was as well that um, no school was particularly clamouring for this mm. and saying that they were going to um, kick out a student on the basis that the student is merely gay or lesbian, transgender and so on, right? Mm. Um, so, I mean, as a general matter, it, it's just been not exactly a fulsome and... Um, uh, well-reasoned through discussion mm. from anyone because there's not really the entire full picture is not before mm. us yeah. for this. I mean, and it, it is quite, you know, there is, I mean, I write on this as well, but it is also quite interesting that um, this then becomes the hot button point when, you know, one of the recommendations of the um, review, it seems, is to introduce a Commonwealth Religious Discrimination Act to, mm. to prohibit religious discrimination and things like employment and so on. So, mm. um, so there is some coverage in um, some states mm. that you can't be discriminated against when going for a job on the mm. grounds of religion, except the Commonwealth Act that provides for this mm. um, only applies in some circumstances and doesn't apply where state law allows that discrimination. So in New South Wales, mm. um, you can be discriminated against on the grounds of religion, mm. for example. Um, you know, and we have various things of, um, so in our Muslim communities, people experience discrimination of different kinds. There's various cases, for example, where um, entire community agitation groups get up in arms about the idea that a mosque is going to be yeah. built somewhere, yeah. right? That um, happened in my neighbourhood, actually. Once. Oh, it was and in, I was at a church. And how, how did yeah. you deal with leading anyway, that, that's a different that agitation story. group? You know? <laughs> you know, <when> you, <laughs> did you wrap the Australian flag around you? No, no. I, <laughs> I left the church where I had that being uh, promoted oh, gosh. And, and never yeah. came back. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, there you go. 
Dark Times. Yeah. Another little little, so little notch in the I, Dave Taylor dark history story. <laughs> um I, so I do want to. So, I, so there are, yeah. my point being though that there, there is actually like for instance that is a much in some ways a much bigger um, uh, question and mm. much bigger um, thing that is society wide and so on around mm. questions of religious discrimination and so on and yet that's not what the discussion is and you can understand why because this comes out of um, our discussion on um, extending marriage to same sex couples mm. and that in itself you know um, I think some religious communities have been. Um, Particularly naive mm. about the sort of political capital to the capital they have in the wake of that mm. discussion and how these yeah. reviews would yeah. look for them and so on. But yeah, so I do want to move on to ask you kind of some more substantive questions about the nature of religious liberty and why it actually matters. But before we get there, I, I wonder that whether you could comment on how you think. Uh, well, it's mainly our diocese that has been in the media about this. How? Do, what do you think about? The way in which this issue was communicated and talked about by the diocese did it did it seem to you was was it was it uh, just um, a lack of charity on the half behalf of reporting, or could a better job have been done to actually communicate the church's position on it? Look, I I don't think um, I don't I think in some ways, no matter what you do mm. in these fields, um, you are damned if you try to speak uh, right. in some ways. And so, you know, there would be some quarters, I mean, not all, but, you know, no matter what was said mm. and how it was said, it would be not interpreted charitably or mm. whatever. Um, that said, I mean, you have to go back, I think, and go, well, um, you know, my own view on the plebiscite was that it was a bad idea for constitutional reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you can read about that, but... That is, the, the plebiscite was a bad idea sorry, rather the postal than the vote. Yes, the postal vote. The idea of having a postal vote was yeah. a bad idea. Yeah. And then the way it was run was terrible mm. um, and, you know, completely lacking in charity on all sides, really. Um, but then if you're a traditionalist... Who, mm. who thinks marriage is between a man and a woman, then I think the real the reality would it should have been that you could present your view in a manner that is charitable and open and so on and trying to say to people, here it is, but then also say, look, um, we think we understand that people have this difference of view and mm. if there is this change, then look, we think the following accommodation should be made and so mm. on and so forth. And that's not really how it was run. I mean, the major campaigning had things like, you know, um, uh, against what was the phrase, um, the gay sex agenda. Yeah, you know, and radical gay, sex radical agenda. gay sex agenda. Yeah. And you know, this, these, these, uh, which is adverts. the name of my punk band. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> and they uh, and and they had these you know dark ominous ads where concerned mother looks at camera, mm. music plays, child wears dress. <laughs> yeah. You know this sort of stuff, and you're going, okay, well this could have been done in a different way. And I, I, I described it as trying to um, galvanise your base, mm. basically as a get-out-the-vote sort of tactic. Yeah. And, and then, But the reason why I say that is because you go back to that and then you think, well, now how do you think you're going to talk about these other questions of That's liberty right. and so yeah. on, given that context? So what happens, of course, after the plebiscite is that people completely and utterly overdetermine mm. the meaning of the of the I keep saying plebiscite the postal vote. Mm. Um, they overdetermine the meaning. So mm. Australia voted on like sixty forty something like that um, uh, around um, to extend marriage to same sex couples, yeah. right? And so what what then immediately do you get? People say Australia has voted to eliminate discrimination. Yeah. 
right? And you go... Um, but yes, yes. Now, because that's, that's now how they that, read the decision. Was well, they, that it was well, they can. A matter of equality. Yeah, so yeah. they can. I think it's wrong to read it entirely. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it clearly... Because clearly people, somebody could vote and say, I believe gay and lesbian couples should have the right to get married. But I also think yes. that these communities should be able to, individuals should be able to object on the conscientious basis and whatever. Yeah. Right? You clearly can hold yeah. that view. Or, but or they, you could have you could have like a um, um, a different kind of just moral framework for thinking about it. You could say, that I'm not arguing for the sake of equality. I'm saying that um, uh, in, this is a, a relationship of training and virtue that same-sex people should be afforded rather than this is... Uh, because this set of people get it, this other yes, set yes, of yes. people. Oh no, no, yeah, There's yeah. There's all sorts of more oh, of substantive yes, 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 yeah, yeah. There are no, no, yeah. yeah, and and yeah, and people do this obviously within religious communities, mm. arguing that this is a relationship of virtue and, and indicative of the nature of marriage and so on. Mm. Um, but my point is that mm. people can then overdetermine the meaning because it's a bare vote. Yeah. And so what they say is that we voted entirely against discrimination. And mm. and then people come back and go, oh, hold on a second, what about liberty and these questions and so on? And in part, I mean, they can say that because of the abstract nature of the vote, but they can also say it in part because the way the campaigning was run in some ways, it can, you know, whether you try and determine that it was a complete repudiation of all mm. the sort of stuff that came out of things like Coalition for Marriage and so mm. on. Mm. Um, so then you get to the situation where now you're trying to say, oh, okay, we, we want to be able to say that our property should only be leased out for certain purposes, consistent mm. with doctrine of this church. Um, so in the sitting diocese of the Anglican Church, this has been the question that was before Synod. Um, and look, I could talk a lot mm. about synod process and I will at some stage. Do. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, and, and how um, it's quite, some of it's quite alarming, I think, but... Yeah. Um, uh, you know, so the the diocese and I think some religious communities believe that they have to nail these things down. Mm. So, and then they're in part, you know, whether you agree with uh, what they're nailing down, mm. you know, that's let's put that question to one side. And part what they are saying is you have to nail it down because anti-discrimination law now says yeah. that you can only act, say, consistent with your doctrine. Yeah. So you have to articulate what your doctrine is. Mm. Now, in the diocese, they emphasized a case from Victoria mm. in which the, uh, which the brethren uh, were running a campsite and it was held in part that they don't have a doctrine around uh, marriage between a man and a woman mm. because it doesn't say anything in their doctrinal statements about this. Now, some learned scholars... Mm have criticised this. Yeah. Um, partly on the basis that it's ridiculous to think that in 1905, yeah. the Brethren would put down in their doctrinal statements um, a statement about marriage between yeah. a man and a woman. It's an argument no, from absence. No, yes, and no one would have ever thought of this. And also doctrinal statements, right, typically are focused on um, questions of theological difference, like about the nature of Christ. Yeah. Um, so you don't, you know, you typically don't have this. So there's an idea that you have to put this into statements. And this is what Synod yeah. was trying to do. Now, I think they're probably, uh, I think that's probably being overstated because it's unlikely, I think, in New South Wales that you'd go before a court and a court would say, what's the Sydney Diocese of the Anglican Church's doctrine on, uh, is, is, is marriage between a man and a woman a doctrine of the Sydney Diocese? Yeah. And it's like, well... <laughs> It's pretty clear, given especially in the past couple of years, what the what the city diocese thinks. So you know, I think um, now, but you know, so then there has to be something said. But um, but the way you say it, mm. then uh, if you think if you think something has to be said, mm. the way you say it then becomes interesting and important as yeah. well. And you know, there was one comment in synod that I thought was quite 
good in which one of the rectors, uh, one of the uh, priests stood up and said, look, he agrees with the idea that whatever your doctrine is, property should be used in a manner that is consistent with it. But why on earth don't we have wider wider discussion then? I mean, this is a legal document, mm, so yeah, there is that. Yeah. But why don't within that we have a wider discussion about the use of church property for things like hospitality to mm. refugees, to mm. homeless, to this, yeah, to yeah. this, and so on? Yeah. Why Why is it that we now, def, def, why is it that our, we will be publicly known as a, this church will be publicly known as the church that defines its doctrinal and property usage on this basis? Yeah. Yeah, and it's and um, to protect its commercial commercial use of spaces right. as well. Um, I mean, uh, I uh, Liam's having a bit of a panic attack with her over time, uh, but uh, <laughs> oh, we've got to. I do, do want to finish something substantive. On but this one I, as well. I just want to say, uh, I just want to ask as well. Like, I, I should just say. So one of my big frustrations um, looking at the way people engage with this, especially people of a progressive bent, is like I I understand the deep anxiety around communicative harm that's done through discrimination and things like that of um, children and young people, adults, whatever, who are LGBT and things like that. So I really understand the anxiety around discrimination. Um, But at the same time, I just get this sense that um, with all that said, people just don't care about religion as a particular good um, that people want to bind themselves to. And it's almost like um, it is an unintelligible concept. Uh, what religious religion? What it is that you're trying to protect through religious liberty? Um, and you've talked a lot in in numerous places about how it's often misconstrued as just a um, means of self actualization or, or expression of authenticity in the mindset of of, of liberal culture. Um, what could you just give your kind of pitch at what religious liberty law is actually for. Why is religion something that the state should be concerned at fostering and protecting? I think we can only understand religion through, um, you know, thick concepts that then we try and analogize out to. Mm. So I think we can only narrate it within particular traditions and then think about how that relates to others, you know, in a capacious and generous and hospitable way. Mm. So, you know, when I think of religion, then I think of, uh, and religious liberty, I think of the free capacity of communities to um, uh, form communities of solidarity, fraternity and charity, that is to say, pursuing right relationship with God and with each other. Mm. Um, Now that has an understanding, like uh, almost a notion that you like you said, bind yourself to something or mm. you are part of something that has a trajectory and a tradition yeah. and a way of thinking about the relationship with God and how that exhorts people to live well. Yeah. Um, as opposed to an understanding that uh, you get in a lot of literature and a lot of cases now where there's that, as you mentioned, a sort of process of self-definition. So you can get it, you can get cases, for example, where somebody gets to basically define what it means for them to be Catholic. Mm. Um you know, one really interesting case um, I think from the European mm. Court was about a uh, worship director, um, uh, choir, you know, at a Catholic parish in mm. Germany, and he set up, uh, left his wife and set up with a, another woman, and uh, in the church's eye, that's a form of bigamy, right? Mm. Um, he couldn't get an annulment and so on, mm. and so they said you can no longer be the choir director, the worship director Mm. of this parish. And, you know, the argument, and he was successful in saying it, that this was contrary to his sort of right to self-determination. And that presents an issue where he can now determine what it means to be Catholic on his terms. He's Catholic, but in his own distinctive way. And 
<laughs> you know, if you think, well, what it means to be religious is that actually, yes, we do bring of it something of our genius and hopefully by which I mean our gifts and our mm. talents and so on into shaping that community. Mm. But there is a, a sense in which we are also part of something that is not simply the aggregate of our individual self-definition, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so that I think is one thing. The other thing, I just because you you can uh, you know you can see this being written about mm. elsewhere. But the other thing I just wanted to touch on was an interesting point about um, what it means to be religious and uh, in these conflict situations. And there's a there's a great article, famous in law and religion writing by an uh, author called Robert Cover, and, and he talks, mm. it's called Nomos and Narrative, and he talks about the jurispathic office, mm. the idea that law doesn't simply engage in world-building but actually engages in normative uh, nomos order destruction, yeah. that it defeats other forms of law mm-hmm. um, by, um, by asserting its superiority and its supremacy over the law and custom or tradition of, mm. a, say, a religious community, as he was arguing and so on. Now, there's problems with what he says there, but it's an interesting way to think about the idea that um, what is going on here as well is that there are plural authorities that we may understand in some sort of cooperative relationship, and the question is about how much they should be subjected to mm. the sort of single sovereignty and single supremacy of a universal mm. law and so on. You know, uh, if you want a paradigm case of this, just to think it through would be, uh, it's only been reported in the news, so, you know, how much you take, but uh, the Hugh Ann Tran case where she's got her seven-month-old daughter, Isabella, mm. and they're in the uh, Melbourne Detention Centre at the mm. moment after her claim for asylum was rejected. Mm. And the um, reporting is that she's been denied the ability to take her child, Isabella, to go get baptised in the Catholic Church and that she's also been denied at times the capacity to go and attend uh, at Mass. And now that is, to me, really fascinating because, I mean, it's fascinating in a dark way, I think, (laughs) because what you're dealing with there is the idea that the supremacy of the state and the sheer weight and authority of it Mm. in this very palpable setting of a detention centre is saying that there cannot be what Ron Williams calls graded levels of loyalty. Yes. There cannot be that baptism into God's own family. Yeah. Instead, you are wholly defined as a subject, in this case, subjected to the authority of the state. That's right. And it seems to be an instance where basically the the city of man is preventing entry into the city of God and so becoming demonic, right? Like so, <laughs> so I mean, it, it, and yeah, in those terms, you'd think of it like it, it, it encourages a form of apostasy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, we should move on very briefly to our next um, section, which is hopefully a little <laughs> bit more light than the state becoming demonic, uh, which is our, <laughs> which is our final section. Oh, why, help me, Superman. Church Y, which is our monthly section where we kind of give an audible sigh about the the um, the state of a thing that we love, which is the church. And, um, yeah, so we've talked a little bit about our experiences and reception of our diocese's um, discussions in the public sphere and its decisions over certain things that we may or may not agree with. Um, and... Uh, we thought we'd just go full hog and just keep going with that theme <laughs> and uh, talk about something that um, I think 
um, I've coined the phrase the cult of explanation. Um, mm. uh, you can pick that up if you want. Uh, but Joel, you're, uh, so we're both um, Anglicans um, living in Sydney, uh, that although some would not recognise us necessarily as Sydney Anglicans, but we see ourselves as part of the church and committed to um, our, our, our diocese in would you agree with that? Oh, the rubber hits the road, Dave. He's I, no longer, he's, no, he's lost his lay license to breach. He's just like, that's it. Um, it's over. It's all It's yeah, over. It's the, it fi- all the five people who listen are going to report you straight up the chain. <laughs> um, so, but Joel, so you're not from Sydney originally um, and your, your formation... Is different to uh, what uh, most uh, people that you uh, would come across in Sydney Anglican Church is different. One of the things that you've pointed out to me um, as an outsider looking uh, at what happens in our churches and our parachurch activities is you see a lot of explaininating happening um, and you think this is quite unusual. Do you want to just give us a bit of a picture of <laughs> of what you're talking about yeah, in that regard? Yeah. Um, what are you calling it? Cult of explanation. Yeah. I, in my head, I had that, um, you know, when Homer turns to Lisa and says, your mother has been consumed by a god, I call him Gambler. <laughs> it's, it's like explaninator or something. Um, so I think this is something that um, it's not just here necessarily, but certainly is, um, it infects the church. And um, sometimes I like to think of our why church why as kind of like the laity strikes back. Um, <laughs> but... Um, you know, what, what What sort of things am I thinking? I'm thinking of, um, now, a lot of these examples come from our own church as well, right? When, but I've seen that elsewhere, um, when someone gives a reading yeah. in the church, before they give a reading, mm. they preface it yeah. by telling you how you should think about this reading. Mm. Um, what are the three things you should know before you hear them speak this reading? Mm. Prayers that are meant to be prayers of the people that are quite detailed and explanatory yeah. and detailing out uh you know, the particulars of our evils and don't actually involve the congregation. Sometimes they don't even ask the congregation for a response. Um, Hymns that are sung, but before the hymn is sung, an explanation is given as to what the nature of the hymn is and what it is saying to Mm. you. Um, I've seen in one church when they did, they had the uh, Nicene Creed, they put an asterisk beside the word Catholic, as in one Catholic and Apostolic They footnoted it. They footnoted it to say... When we say Catholic, we do not mean <laughs> the Roman Catholics. We just mean universal. Yeah. Right? So these things. Um, I'm thinking of things like, you know, when we talk about um, how people are uh, do their evangelism on universities and mm. see it as simply a case of potentially, you know, engaging in a sort of explanation because the idea there being that the absence of knowledge Yeah is simply what is at stake if they accept, as uh, someone recently put it to us, the pitch, then that will be sufficient. Um, So these things, I think, point to an understanding that the key thing to be doing at any moment is to making sure somebody has the right content and that they have the right way of thinking about it Mm. either to prepare them to think even further about the right content yeah. or simply to make sure that they've got it correct so yeah. that they're part of something. And so, if, and one of the things I think you missed out as well is the, the nature of preaching in, um, in churches. Oh, sorry, yes. Sydney. So, let me so get, you, let me, you let, haven't let, been I, to too many churches in Sydney, but... Yeah, no, um, no, no. So that, that is well. Expository preaching oh, yes. is the... Uh, so I've seen, on, I've seen prominent 
um, evangelical figures saying if you go to a church and they don't do expository preaching yeah. or exegetical preaching, you should just leave. Yeah, it has to have some Greek words in it for starters. Yeah. But, but, yeah, I mean, an example would be I once visited... A redeemer, because mm. a friend was there and wanted me to That's come. Tim Keller's church, yeah, this yeah. one in New York, and yep. so on, and sat there, and and it was remarkable because the entire sermon was basically 30, 45 minutes of "Do you get this? Mm. Do you get this? Do you get this?" Mm. And then leading up to a course in their context, everything you could just see like roadmap up to penal substitution, right? Mm. But do you get this? Do you get this? And I, I thought two things to myself. One was, gosh, this precipitates some anxiety. <laughs> you know, do you really get this? Yeah. I mean, I was actually just more fundamentally, I was incredibly bored. Yeah. But also, I thought, how anxious could this be? Do you get this? This constant. Mm. Do you get this? Yeah. Um, and then the other thing I thought was how passive this is. Yeah. How deeply passive this is that my job here, I'm not even a student sitting there taking notes and thinking about the exam later. I'm just a congregant who sits yeah. there and goes, yeah, <laughs> nods my head. And then, and, then it's, and then it's finished. And then it's finished and I go, cool story. <laughs> you know, and then we go on a merry way and I don't know. Yeah, I think... Have having, lunch in which we actually like enjoy ourselves. I don't know. What it, I think your point... We touched on anxiety. It's a very interesting one. I think um, um, a lot of the evangelicalism that I have been exposed to, and you know, I've always been kind of somewhat on the periphery of of, of evangelicalism uh, in some ways. I, although I did was a youth pastor for an evangelical church in my early twenties. Um, there, there is a sense that it seems to me that some of this need for explanation comes from a deep anxiety in leaders to 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 make sure that the congregant has all of their stuff right right in that moment and if they don't have it all right that the um the uh the preacher is almost culpable for the state of that person's soul right <laughs> um and it's it's an anxiety around um, and, and you see this, I think, in ethical teaching I, that I, I've come across a lot with um, evangelical leaders, just this deep anxiety to make sure basically that people are fully sanctified on the spot through explanation. Um, and, it's, and it seems to be actually masking a pretty tragic desire for control. Well, see now, I, now I, I should say... I'm not a moral relativist or a liberal or anything uh, like a theological liberal or anything like that. Um, I believe deeply in truth and, doc- and do- uh, doctrinal orthodoxy and um, moral sanctification and things like that. Those are all really important. But I tend to think that that's a lifelong process mm. that um, you get disciplined into through a lifetime of church attendance. Um, and it seems like that the anxiety is actually an anxiety to get it right, right then now. There, yeah, you're right. I think encapsulating it all in one time. So in some ways it becomes repetitive, right, across yeah. different weeks and so on. Yeah, and predictable. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think the way you describe it is, is nice and in some ways quite charitable, the idea that it's an anxiety to get it there because you feel the weight of it. Mm. Um, see, because in my mind I, I took it at more, uh, I guess, because I'm just infinitely more cynical, <laughs> um, is that I see it as mistrust. Yeah, right. Mistrust of the laity. Yeah. You know, if you contrast... But they're, they're related. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, sure. Sure, Dave, you just jump on my bed. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. No. Um, so mistrust in the sense that you take a homily, right, yeah. traditionally understood 
15 minutes max, 10 minutes. And the idea is that it percolates. Yeah. You know, and it's sort of like to use, I'm now just mixing my metaphors, but the aroma of it sort of yeah. lingers in your in your mind and you're allowed to go away and you have your own meditation because it's just simply a more simple meditation mm. upon the text that then allows for a certain openness to continue in the conversation and continue in mm. your own meditation and so on. Whereas this form of explanation, mm. the idea that they must get it right now. Yes. Yeah. You know, there's a distrust. Or the idea when someone gives a reading, but they preface it with, here's the things you should know before you read this. Yeah. You know, or isn't this, and now our St. George's <laughs> has a particular peculiarity on this. Yeah. This is done across the board, but yeah. St. George's has a fun one about this. When, it, when a passage is morally ambiguous, someone has to tell me how morally ambiguous <laughs> it is because, you know, I can't read or yeah. understand these things. Well, that that's the liberal version of, of right. that as well. Yeah. Right. So they're, they're, there has to be a, like a maybe this didn't happen. Yeah, or, or like <laughs> oh that was a bit that was a bit of a crazy moment. Yeah. So I yeah. So I think there's a distrust there yeah. of a, of 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 the laity and a kind of like in a sense that no the the major action takes place through the exposition of the preaching and so on, yeah. rather than through the movements of the whole people together. In yeah. which, look, I'm like you. I and believe, the, you know, the Holy Spirit as well. Yeah, and there has to. And I'm like you. You know, I'm not. This is not an opposition to the idea that people are taught things, yeah. right? Yeah. That there is a process of growth and learning and mm. so on. Um, and nor is it against the idea that there is, you know, a distinct priestly role and so on, right? Yeah. But, but there is something about both the movement of the people through these different parts of a service yeah. or through the different parts of Christian life, but also, you know, I think you touched on it as well, is the idea that this is over time. So yeah. I think what what I've also encountered when since coming here mm. is you get uh, quite a lot of people our age mm. who when you talk to them about their church life and so on, they basically say, I'm bored. Yeah. Um, and not bored in a kind of like, I need my Nintendo 64. Yeah. I say Nintendo 64. I don't know what the kids have these yeah. days. <laughs> yeah. What's the game? <laughs> the PlayStation console? 4. There's PlayStation one right 4. there. Right. Okay, there it is. Yeah. Right. Or they say they're bored in a sense of like, I am not being... I am not being grown. I'm not being fed. There is yeah. no sort of discipling. There is no sort of formation of myself. And I mean that in a very deep spiritual sense of like my own interiority yeah. and also the yeah. idea that actually I am getting deeper and deeper into something that is good and flourishing yeah. and interesting and exciting yeah. and so on. And it, it and it's also, so I think one on top of those, those excellent points, I think another layer to add um, would be to say it's also kind of pedagogically, that's a terrible pronunciation, it's bad pedagogy as well because um, you don't learn um, through just having things laid out and explained in front of you. Yeah. You learn and grow in your understanding through having questions raised for you that you're left <laughs> with, you're set, you sit with and you actually develop a longing and a desire to go and, and work through those questions. Um, and that's that's how you actually translate. I don't but remember. Can't all questions I, be uh, answered in six boxes? Yes, that's right. We've just taught Joel about two ways to live. He hadn't heard about that before. I had not. Um, but so I remember going to an evangelical concert. I used to go to these conservative evangelical conferences up in Katoomba, which is in the Blue Mountains outside of Sydney. Um, and um, they were your standard kind of expository talks all the time, all the time, all the time. Um, and I heard this one preacher, I went to this terrible, terrible conference there 
once that left me in a really dark place. But there was this one preacher who was a bit of a ray of light. He was a British Baptist preacher. I think his name was Robert Amez. And he, his sermons would, or his Bible talks, what have you, were just explorations of questions he didn't understand. And he, he looked at um, the story of Joseph and how Joseph could not understand providence from the moment that he was in and that actually being, uh, being a disciple of Jesus means trusting God in dark times. And so he'd just tell these pastoral stories. He was a, quite an older man um, at the time. I think he was, would have been in his 70s at the time. And he just told these partial stories about like he was praying with this couple that they'd be able to conceive over years and years and years and they finally did and their child died within the first year um, just suddenly. And he just said, he just told that story and said, I don't understand what God was doing there. Um, and that was a huge growth moment for me because all of a sudden I was like, oh, I, it's, it's actually safe to be left in tension. Um, and, uh, and that's how you... That's how you grow. That's how you develop. But it's dangerous um, right. from the perspective of the person who is anxious to make sure everyone has the answer. And so you kind of stunt people's growth by, um, by force-feeding them all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that's right. Like I think actually if you th- think about how people begin to think of this as something for them and something, you know, relevant, not in mm. the sense of relevant to culture, but just, you know, yeah. can be deeply embedded within their lives and so on. There is much more, we've said this before, there is much more needed about tilling the field of imagination. Yeah. Uh, actually planting the seeds to then allow them to p- potentially survey that field themselves. Mm. Yeah. Um, and being less concerned about where the dangerous leads that may take because you're in a situation where, you know, they, the imaginative capacity may not be there to begin with to mm. even start. So there's a kind of overconfidence in the idea of explanatory power. Now, mm. explanations can be important and part of a rich apologetics can be about explaining certain mm. things or something, but there's a sense in which actually the bigger task is probably the formation of the person. Yeah, yeah. And it's actually like, uh, and this is this is... We probably need to wrap up soon, but um, uh, there's an irony about the fact that we're in a tradition that is so hyper-Protestant in in our context, so hyper-Protestant and such a such and recent celebrations around the Reformation being big, a really big deal. And one of the things that they insist on is, you know, oh, this great historic moment when the church lost its authority to interpret uh, scripture for us and the individual got the capacity to do so but then it was replaced with this approach to teaching where the preacher gets all of the authority of interpretation look (laughs) this is actually this is actually something we're saving for another time because look i don't think that's a i don't think that's an a um i don't i think that's actually deeply connected Right. Um, the idea that it's in the lowest of churches that we find the sort of highest, highest station of clerical yeah. Yeah. authority. Well, that's probably a good place to Ooh. wrap it up. Yeah, we're just we're just signposting for your future. Stick around, <laughs> stick around, Tim. Stick around, Shane. <laughs> stick around, Dave's dad. <laughs> Anyone else? When are we going to double our numbers? Because you just basically Andrew. Like... Andrew um, often gives us feedback oh, on okay. social media. Well, that's Andrew very nice. Dunst- Dunstall. Oh, Drew Dunstall. Drew Dunstall. Well, that's very yeah. nice. Yeah. Um, 
Well, thank you for joining us yeah. on uh, this PeaceCast. Look, to give you a taster for what we're going to be engaging in next time, uh, when we do the conversation starter, we're going to be asking the deep, fundamental, important question. Should Dave post more photos of himself at the gym? <laughs> what Mil- John Milbank calls a saturated evil. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to discuss whether that is a saturated evil. <laughs> Spoiler alert, yes. That's the answer. It's a saturated evil, Dave. Oh, man. And then more what? Canoeing pics as well. Yep. I'm loving it. All right. I'm supposed to be actually closing. So uh, thanks for joining us. Lord. <laughs> thanks for joining us. Please follow us on Twitter. We're at Peace Talks Cast. Yes, on- Lord. On Facebook, we are Peace Talks Paddo. Uh, you can listen to this podcast on SoundCloud and on Stitcher and on Apple iTunes. And if you are on the iTunes, please do leave a comment if you feel so inclined. Uh, we've said it many times, we deserve a bigger audience um, and we deserve all the five-star ratings we could get. <laughs> um, so see you next time. Bye. Bye.